You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have uh, Lindsay Beal. She's an occupational therapist uh, and author of a couple books. Uh, one is Sensory Processing Challenges, Effective Clinical Work with Kids and Teens. And another one, uh, she's a co-author of Raising a Sensory Smart Child, which is a foreword by uh, Temple Grandin. So, uh, Lindsay, thanks for coming. How are you doing today? My pleasure. I'm so happy to be here. I'm great. Thanks. Well, good. Well, tell me about your work uh, dealing with kids' um, sensitivity to stimuli. What, what's that about? Okay. Well, um, I am an occupational therapist, and I work with kids, uh, adolescents, and young adults in their homes and schools on a variety of issues uh, that affect their uh, participation in learning and playing and socializing. And that includes fine motor skills, gross motor skills, visual perceptual skills, self-help and self-regulatory skills, and perhaps most importantly or fundamentally, underlying sensory processing skills, which kind of form the foundation for all the other skills. And um, so a lot of kids with uh, what I call neurotypical neurotypically developing children have sensory sensitivities that impact uh, their everyday lives, as well as kids. You know, sensory sensitivities kind of are on a continuum from like the little quirky things that all toddlers have on the likes and dislikes, the likes, the preferences and intolerances that we as adults also have. Those are kind of at the the mildest end, and I wouldn't even call that a disorder. It can range all the way from there to a more significant uh, and ultimately disabling, to some degree, uh, sensory problems that we see a lot in autism and developmental disabilities and so on. And what these look like, um, you know, depending on where you fall on that sensitivity spectrum, It could be uh, extreme sensitivity to certain textures of clothing. Um, I've worked with children who will only wear like one pair of leggings and one T-shirt. Anything Mm. else is intolerable for them. They can't handle seams in their socks. Certain sounds are really painful to their ears. And it's not necessarily because it comes in too loudly. It's just the frequency of the sound, like a hairdryer or a vacuum cleaner is just 
exquisitely painful to their super sensitive hearing. A, a lot of these kids um, have an unusually high uh, or unusually low threshold for pain. They may be they may be able to see and hear fluorescent lights as they flicker on and off. Um, I actually I can see that myself. So it, it's not like this. It's always this extreme sensitivity. It, it can, you know, it, it can fall anywhere on that spectrum. A lot of the kids that I work with have um, very low muscle tone, uh, and muscle tone refers to the state of the muscle when it's at rest versus muscle strength, which is the state of the muscle when it's in use. So when a child is at rest, just sort of sitting in a classroom chair, for example, they sort of melt into gravity and end up being those kids that are like sprawled all over the table or are rolling around on the floor during uh, circle time. A lot of the kids that I work with move awkwardly or they seem kind of clumsy or accident prone because they're not getting good feedback from the muscles and joints of their bodies. Um, they may... Well, what, uh, yeah. Quick Go question. What, what causes... What do you think is the underlying cause of... Um being sensitive to certain stimuli, sounds, or other things, or like you said, being floppy and, you know, flopping all over the place and, and having accidents like that falling down? Okay. So most of us first learn about the world through our senses, right? The little baby moves through space, sees things, hears things, um, uses their body and learns the limits of, of their body and the outside world. And it, it's a process Sensory processing is how we transform those bits of information into like messages that we know how to act on. Now, some people, because of how their nervous system is wired, meaning their brain and, 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 and their body, um, they don't take in and use that information in quite the same way. And there's lots of science uh, that behind this where they're finding that there's a difference in structure and function of, I'm going to get a little technical here, in uh, the white matter brain tracks in the back of the brain, the posterior part of the brain, where the activity is different. The, the brain fibers are, are working in a different way. So the connectivity in parts of the brain aren't happening in a typical way. There's also differences in the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. So it's kind of, to, to oversimplify, it's a difference in wiring. So it's not faulty wiring, it's just a difference in wiring. So some people end up being hypersensitive, overreactive to all kinds of sensory stimuli. Other people are underreactive or hypo-reactive to some of that stimuli. And some people are mixed. It depends on how well they've slept, how well they've eaten, how much stress they're under. So there's a, there's so a lot I, of variables um, here. What do you call it when someone has a, I guess a light version of this, what is a pet peeve? Mm-hmm. And a, a strong version of it is someone, you know, yells and screams when they, when they have a certain stimuli or let's say they cover their head or they just, I don't know, they freak out. What, right. Are there like, words to characterize the levels or the, um, you know, the, the spectrum of response to stimuli? Well, you know, 
it becomes a disorder when it interferes with daily functions. So if I'm in a restaurant that's really noisy and I can't hear the person I'm with, I get kind of annoyed um, and grouchy and, you know, I, I'm, I may stop talking so much. I may just give up on that. That's just like common every day versus someone who hears a loud or unexpected sound and screams and freaks out. I guess we could talk about, you know, human experience, just daily life experience in its extremes. So, you know, mild, common versus at the more extreme, dysfunctional, disordered. Well, I guess in my experience, I have pet peeves. Everyone does. Like, I hate whispering, you know, and people make fun of me for it. And you know, my wife hates computerized voices, and I make fun of her for that. So I guess society probably isn't very nice to people about their pet peeves. And when it escalates to a higher level, my guess is that they'll say, what's wrong with that person? And be judgmental. So it's probably, unfortunately, not a, an easy thing to deal with for anybody at any level, especially right. if it's pretty impactful. That's right. And as adults, we've learned how to um, find a partner who doesn't whisper, for example, who knows, who respects our quirks and a job where um, whispering is not an issue on the job. You know, we're able to create a life for ourselves where we can manage our pet peeves for the most part. And but for a kid, those pet peeves, there's a lot of bullying, a lot of teasing that goes on. We all know this from our own childhood. And of course, the, the more sensitive a child is, the more prone they are to difficulties like that. I have pet peeves too. I can't stand fluorescent light. It makes me crazy. Um, mm. And people know, like I do a lot of, um, as, as the author of two books, and you know, I've been in this field for over 20 years. I, I teach a lot of workshops, and um, people now know when I go back to teach a workshop that they need to make sure there's no fluorescent light going right into my eyes, um, or I'll get a headache. Uh, you know, so it's like we learn how to communicate our likes and dislikes and, and work around them, hopefully. But with um, teens and kids. What kind of interventions can you make or what can you do to help the, you know, the teen and the kid understand what's going on and that there's nothing wrong with them. It's just, you know, how they're unique and how do you help them? I love that question because that's what it's all about. And that's what parents and therapists and teachers need to be doing. Um, I'm going to give you an image and the image is of going to a picnic with a paper plate in your hand. And you go and you take a hot dog and you put that on your plate and you get some potato chips and put that on your plate. Then you take some uh, coleslaw, put that on your plate. Everything's fine. But then you take some potato salad, you put it on your plate and your whole plate falls apart. And that's what our nervous systems are like, right? So as a therapist, teachers and parents, we all need to figure out just how much we can put on a, a person's paper plate, their nervous system, before they're going to fall apart. And at the same time, as a therapist, I need to start building a stronger paper plate. And that means, how do I do that, right? It starts with assessment. I need to figure out what is going on with that person. What are their strengths? What are their challenges? What's going on? And I do that through a professional assessment. 
Um, I do have screening tools on the Sensory Smarts website if people want to take a look at those, um, print them out, fill them out for your kid, for yourself. Um, they're not standardized, so this is not something that is scorable, but it will give you an idea if there is indeed something going on and what it might point to. Um, so once I know what's going on with a child, I can customize um, a treatment plan. And that may be reducing some of the stuff I'm putting onto their plate. That might mean having them, for example, uh, wear sound-reducing headphones, noise-reducing headphones in, in crowded, noisy situations, like going to the shopping mall. is intolerable for a lot of people. I can't stand it. You know, so taking that intense sound off their plate. And if you have hypersensitive hearing, if you put sound reducing headphones on, all it does is reduces the sound to a normal noise level. You know, and I'm using that word normal a little bit, you know, I'm, I don't like the word normal, but a typical as expected noise level. Um, well, for that person, yeah, it's normal. For that it's person, tolerable. right. So um, also a great thing are the Vibe earplugs that, again, gives you the full range of sound, uh, but just reduces the volume level, and that becomes more bearable for a person. So this is taking stuff off the plate. At the same time, I want to make that paper plate stronger, and I'm going to do what's called a therapeutic listening program, and that would be having the person listen to specially engineered music um, two times a day um, to... Let me simplify it. Uh, the same way you would exercise weak arms, right, the muscles in your arms by doing exercises, I'm going to exercise the muscles inside the ear so that the person's more able to uh, strongly manage a, a wider range of sounds. So I'm going to do both, and I'm going to do that across so, the board in all settings. Yeah. So do people have different um, sensitivities that come out only at different stress levels? and um... I guess that's my first question. Yeah, I mean, stress is a huge factor in sensory issues. Often a child will do wonderfully well one-on-one -on -one at home, right? They're doing fine. They can do everything, but put them in a classroom setting and they really have a hard time. Or take a child to a, a busy birthday celebration and they have a hard time. So... If a child is upset, I mean, we know from our own life experience, if you're upset about something, everything is going to be um, more extreme, like dealing with a problem at work. Your coping skills just go, you know, way south when you're stressed out about other things. So stress is a, is a very important um, trigger for a lot of these sensory issues. And when we think about stress, stress generates um neurotransmitters in the body, the brain and body, making it much harder to stay calm and, and well-regulated in order to tolerate things. What about if um, uh, a child or a teen has certain stresses, if they're not addressed, does that predispose them to having more or to having other problems? Um, so is it important to deal with these? Untreated stress is toxic really toxic. We know that long-term stress can result in um, physical uh, exhaustion, um, poor sleep, poor, you know, poor learning, poor coping skills. So yeah, we need to deal with stress. Absolutely. 
makes everything worse. Okay. This is important because it'll cascade into all kinds of other health problems, even though it may seem unreasonable or silly or inexplicable or any other number of things to outside observers of a, of a teen or child's behavior. That's right. That's right. And how, how is it very difficult to intervene? I mean, does it depend on the case? Are there certain kinds that are very resistant to help? Or is it just thinking and evaluating and trying to understand what's going on with this person and just saying, well... Yeah, you're talking about the sensory issues. I mean, again, it's a spectrum. So a lot of kids do grow out of their sensory sensitivities, especially with understanding help. Um, They do kind of, you know, move on. Their nervous systems mature and evolve. Other people have lifelong sensory issues, and it becomes more a matter of knowing, I really feel horrible if I don't go to the gym. If I don't get a lot of body awareness input and vestibular movement input into my body, I'm going to have a, a lousy day. So you learn how to um, how to meet your own needs as self-awareness develops. So my goal, especially with older children, is to be like, I feel terrible right now. What's going on? What's happening in my body? And what tools do I know I can go to? What are my go-to strategies for feeling better, right? It's all about self-knowledge. Now, someone with autism may have more extreme difficulties throughout the lifespan, and hopefully they too have gotten good intervention and powerful tools they can use to feel better. So some people outgrow it, some people do not. How do you see that um, parents view sensory issues? Do they just fear that something's wrong with their child or their child has do they fear just a, an autism diagnosis, for instance, or do they just dismiss it? Or, you know, what, what kind of reactions have you seen and what kind, what's the range of them from parents? Well, you know, it, it's interesting. I have a couple of thoughts on that. Um, the first one is I have to address the autism thing head on. Um, you know, when, when a parent goes to the Internet and, and goes and is like touch sensitivity or sound sensitivity, inevitably autism comes up because it's the most um, extreme version of sense. We see the most extreme sensory issues in autism, generally speaking. Um, Just because a child has sensory processing difficulties most certainly does not mean that they have autism. But if a person has autism, they most likely do have sensory issues. So parents are terrified when their child is, um, you know, biting their hand or flapping their hands or running around in circles and, you know, or even lining up toy cars, it's like, uh-oh, uh-oh, this must be autism, you know, and some helpful in-law or neighbor's like, oh, I think your child is autistic, or they look it up on one of the parent chat boards. Um, there's a lot more to autism. There's deficits in communication and sh- the ability to share interests. Uh, so there's a lot more to autism than the sensory issues. Now, parents, they get the hypersensitive child. They can recognize that as a problem. The hyposensitive, the sort of understimulated child, that is sometimes harder for parents to recognize what it is. Like if your child is holding her hands over her ears, screaming, it's too loud, get me out of here, that's, that's a pretty clear message. But for the child who just kind of zones out 
um, who tunes out or shuts down, that's much more difficult uh, for a parent to recognize. So um, they have a hard time with that. Oh, and what kids do when they're under sensitive is they'll tend to, because they want to engage, they'll rev themselves up. And because their nervous system is functioning so poorly, they start to look like hyperactive kids because then they become um, hypermotoric. They can't stop moving once they get started. You know, and that just speaks to a really poorly functioning nervous system. What I do also see um, is a lot of parents who see their child and start to do some research and think, oh, he's really doing poorly in school. It must be sensory or he's not behaving the way I expect him to. It must be sensory. Sometimes that sensory processing uh, disorder diagnosis feels more palatable for a parent than perhaps an autism diagnosis. So, you know, sometimes they, they parents are eager to obtain that diagnosis. Um, and when they really should be looking at anxiety and autism, they're also interrelated. I know it's very confusing for parents. This is why getting a professional evaluation is essential. That will help to clarify what's going on, what needs to be explored further. What about when uh, teens or kids are in public schools? Does the public school system seem to help, or do they just want to come in and do like an autism diagnosis, they misdiagnose, or do they just say, oh, it's ADHD and let's give the kid medicine? I mean, how does a school uh, interact typically in a good or a bad way? Well, schools should not be doing any diagnosis. Right. So the the way to, to get a proper diagnosis is really outside of the school system. Uh, school may refer may have a child psychologist that they work with. Um, and so they may get diagnosed that way. I do recommend to parents, if possible, to go to um, a developmental pediatrician outside of the school system and find out what's going on, get a psychoeducational evaluation so that parents and educators can find out exactly what's going on and, and what the child's learning strengths and challenges are, and then meet that. Unfortunately, insurance companies and schools are positioned the way things are set up right now is if you have an autism diagnosis, the door opens to a huge amount of services in terms of getting a lot of occupational therapy covered, physical therapy covered, and most especially um, educational support covered. So, um, you know, it all depends on the school. I can't speak nationwide uh, about the, about what's going on with schools. Well, very good. Well, Lindsay, I know that um, you're short on time, so, you know, let's wrap but what's the best way for um, parents and for people that, you know, feel like they're interacting with someone that has sensory issues to find out more? Where can they get uh, your books? Where can they contact you if they want to? Okay. Well, um, parents, you can go to sensorysmarts.com, S-E-N-S-O-R-Y-S-M-A-R-T-S.com. You will find a downloadable sensory checklist. You'll find a lot of information about sensory difficulties as well as strategies, uh, the, some of the best techniques for working with schools right there on the website for free. 
Um, you'll also find a load of webcasts and magazine articles. Um, nothing touches what's in my books, and you can find both of my books in uh, most bookstores, as well as on Amazon and other online booksellers. You can just, you know, follow the links um, on the Sensory Smarts website, uh, the book links to get that information. You can also follow me on Facebook on the Raising a Sensory Smart Child and or Sensory Processing Challenges page. And if you have any questions, want to get in touch with me directly, you can email me at info at sensorysmarts.com. Got to put an S at the end of it so it'll get to me. And I'd be happy to speak well, with good. you. Okay. Okay. Well, Lindsay, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate My it. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.